0: and welcome to this week's episode of the Social Review Podcast. I am Jasper at JasperCH on Twitter. Joining me as my co-host this week, we have
1: Eugenie at MemesTD on Twitter. Tiran
2: at Tiran Wilson on Twitter. Uh, James
3: at Gill the People on Twitter.
0: Over the weekend, there were two deadly mass
1: shootings in America.
0: Uh, the first one was in El Paso at a Walmart that killed 20 people uh, and injured a further 26 people. Less than 13 hours later, a second shooting took place in Dayton, Ohio, which killed nine people. Uh, The El Paso shooter was a poster on 8Tran and a white supremacist uh, who drove 650 miles to target Hispanic men and women in the city, and the Dayton shooter was notably misogynist and also killed his own sister. I think we're all going to be in agreement that um, these are absolutely atrocious and that they show that the terrorism threat posed by white supremacy and white nationalism is alive and well in America and is the most dangerous and pertinent form of terrorism um, to America and also to Britain and other countries in the world. Speaking on a legal front, um, Eugenie, how do you think America should be tackling this and its gun laws going forward?
1: I think what's required is a massive legislative change. Uh, I think we'd all agree on that. Um, And I think for every commentator who tries to argue that this is some, you know, this can never be changed, you know, there's that kind of Dan Hodges tweet about after Sandy Hook where all those children were so senselessly killed that, you know, there was no hope anymore and I just think that kind of defeatist attitude is just completely counter counterproductive and um, really the changes need to be made not only in the relationship between gun, kind of gun culture but also it's thinking about money and politics. It's about the sheer amount of money that's being piled into into American politics by the gun rights, quote-unquote, uh, lobby, which even this year, you know, um, have already spent, in, according to Open Secrets, have spent $2.5 million in the first quarter um, on, on kind of uh, legislative spending versus the gun control lobby, which is on 650,000. You know, you look at campaign contributions between 1990 and 2018, for for gun rights it's uh 42.1 million dollars whilst for gun control it's 4.3 million dollars in the same period of time And you just think they're so the gulf there is so wide it feels like the only way that can be changed if there is a complete overhaul of the way that money engages in politics i'm aware this is kind of like an english person lecturing america how it should be changed and i don't want to seem like that because that's really annoying but uh to me that seems like Got to be the the way to move forward from here.
2: I think um, you also often hear uh, well, people kind of say, "Oh, look, the one thing Dan Hodges was actually right about," which uh, I think um, is is one speaking a bit too soon. But also, I think it's been shown up to actually be false because while there is uh, not only a huge amount of uh, money kind of in, in on the NRA side, um, there's also been a kind of a bit of a backlash, um, and we've seen this particularly at last year's midterm elections, where actually you started to see a lot of Democratic candidates running quite hard on uh, stronger gun laws and actually winning, you know, I had really big examples like Jason Crow who won um, in the uh, congressional district that has Aurora in, um, if people remember that cinema shooting from a few years ago, and he won big and flipped that seat to the Democrats. And, and you've seen similar stories in a lot of not only kind of swing districts, but also kind of a lot more slightly um, traditionally Republican areas. So there has been a big move kind of in recent years to go back, I think, because it's starting to become something that's not just a friend of a friend of a friend thing that they experienced anymore. A lot more people throughout America are starting to you know have friends die, have, have relatives die have, have, have it affect their own lives and it's starting to to lead to a change because fundamentally there's really no reason why you need to have kind of assault rifles without background checks being being sold uh, freely to the public. So I think there is kind of a bit of a shift kind of in terms of the, the democratic will, even if they're not yet meet, meeting all the money that the NRA has but um The thing that really mainly worries me is the point at which democracy possibly doesn't matter anymore. The thing that really worries me is the prospect of, say, Trump refusing to leave the Oval Office, because it has become such a cultural split in terms of what gun ownership says about you. Um, I really don't think it's completely unrealistic to envisage a future where he has a kind of private militia that he could readily call upon if he refused to leave the Oval Office
3: I agree that that cultural shift seems to be happening and I'm aware that of course we are British people talking about America so we're very open to correction here but I as far as I can tell the big problem for any legislative push isn't the cultural will I think the Democrats are sort of hearing behind that but as long as you've got the Senate and you've got Mitch McConnell having his chokehold in american democracy. Uh you can't see any any feasible shift and it's really quite depressing really because i have no idea how you get through that i just want to chuck in quickly on a on the cultural shift points that you guys have been
0: discussing um america has always had a tendency towards stricter gun laws in terms of polling and um what people actually believe as opposed to um the republicans um and how they've been enacting legislation so just briefly looking at um gallup polls so an american polling company uh across uh several years um you know stretching all the way back to the 90s there's been a consistent majority for stricter um gun laws on the sale of firearms um you know the most recent statistic they've got here is from uh october 2018 with 61% of people saying they should be more strict, and only 30% saying kept as now, and 8% saying less strict. So it is a minority opinion that um, we don't need gun control reform. So Eugenie is completely right. The thing which is stopping that gun control reform happening is, um, well, okay, so it's two things. So the first thing is money and politics, and the NRA funding Republican politicians. And the secondly, um, to tie back to the political point that Tyrone was making, is um, the American political system. Um, that has consistently been favoring Republican candidacy um, through gerrymandering over the past couple of years, um, as well as the Electoral College, as we saw in 2016, a majority of people in America did not vote for a Republican president in Donald Trump. They voted for a Democratic president who supported stricter gun laws, um, but they haven't got what they voted for. And I completely agree With what you said, Tiran, about the point of Trump refusing to leave the Oval Office, I think that's a very alive and real concern and is, to be honest, quite probable if slash when he loses in 2020 that he'll refuse to leave. At least the El Paso attack, um, you know, the shooter was posting on 8chan, had a white supremacist manifesto, much like the shooting in New Zealand early this year. Um, And these things are directly inspired by Trump. And there are lines in the manifesto which we're not going to repeat here, um, which reference things Trumps has said. Reference things Trumps has said. Sorry, these attacks the on the white supremacist angle. These attacks um, are directly linked to the president of the United States and. Uh, his policy and his use of rhetoric. This may seem like a hopelessly optimistic point, but I do genuinely believe America will get to a place where they have much stricter gun control because, as you said um, about the midterms last year, um, Democrats won a majority in the House, and I still think they can win in 2020. I don't think Trump's re-election is a foregone conclusion, and provided we can get a Democratic president in the White House um, and maybe a Democratic majority in the Senate as well, and maintaining that Democratic majority in the House then we are going to see that good gun control reform.
1: Yeah, I think also when you're talking about that that chain, that network between um, mass shooters and people who've been radicalised and to the policies of Donald Trump, I think we also have to make sure that this doesn't become uh, like so many things that have come up during the Trump presidency that kind of rot within the American conservative Um, movement and especially within the republican party is not just can't just be put down onto donald trump being some kind of aberration um although obviously to an, an extent he is but also he you could say is simply reiterating what many people have been saying and arguments that have been made for many many years he's just always in that way of his is always just saying what no one ever said out loud um i think the bbc flagged the fact that the one of the uh one of the senators for Texas, John Cornyn, tweeted um, last year that uh, some news article which said that almost nine His- there were almost nine Hispanic residents for every additional white resident in Texas. This idea that the kind of white white people are being um, replaced—it's called the Great Replacement theory. Um, this uh, usually kind of coming with anti-Semitism as well. The idea is being funded by some kind of lobby of shadowy Jews. Um, is is something that is you know that that is implicit that argument is within that that news article that he tweeted that was in like the texas tribune you can kind of see the network of complicity sorry um in throughout the kind of political network so you can't just say oh this is the example of this is the kind of culmination of some kind of very extreme you know just 8chan or you know it can't just be come down to that you've got to say you know, look out more broadly, see this is everywhere. And it's not just in America as well. It's in England too.
2: But the main difference here, instead of Hispanics, it tends to, the threat tends to be focused a lot more on Muslims who still only make up three to five percent of the British population. But you've still got people like Douglas Murray and The Spectator writing hysterical articles about how uh, uh, talking about, Euro, unironically, about Eurabia um, and all these other kind of very uh, <laughs> fast breathing kind of uh, predictions uh, and it's it's Really, um, it really stands out. I think quite a lot how prevalent a lot of this kind of commentary is, and sort of the likes of the Spectator, um, and the Telegraph, and so on and so forth, and uh, the Daily Mail, and that is a real kind of network, which is uh, I think kind of really uh, set up a kind of mood music that means that uh, you. Know, uh, that means that you've got uh, quite a lot of cases that we've seen over the last two, three years, ever since the, the murder of Joe Cox by a white extremist. Um, uh, and that it just keeps coming, coming up and being cited. You've seen quite a lot of cases of uh, random Labour MPs being targeted for murder or, for example, the uh, Finsbury Park ramming attack um, at the, outside the mosque or the attack on the, the mosque where Jeremy Corbyn was there. And that network is there. And really, the only thing we have to thank for the fact that we don't have more murder victims is the fact that we have had stricter gun laws ever since Dunblane. that it is so much harder to kill so many people at once. So uh, that's a really troubling kind of... Uh, we, we we have much of the... we have essentially the same hardware but not necessarily the software yet.
3: I think what's quite important is to see this all in an international framework. So it's quite easy to look at the specific national factors but as you look at it now, um, what's happening is this is sort of an international right, and they call themselves the intellectual dark web, don't they? And all shades into this sort of right-wing, anti-international international international, where you have this sort of cross-national intellectual network and you have things like um, Donald Trump retweeting Katie Hopkins and Douglas Murray and Stefan Molyneux and all that sort of... uh, All those uh, pseudo-intellectuals meeting up. Basically, I think you've just got to say that they all they're all connected and although you may sort of see the symptoms happen more in america when you have looser gun control uh there's no real difference between what's happening there and what's happening here and you've got to take them all holistically
0: i definitely agree and you know uh you mentioned retweeting katie hopkins katie hopkins frequently refers to london as londonistan which is a very blatant racist dog whistle boris johnson as well our now prime minister and his um comments about Muslim women looking like letterboxes last year. These things are linked to the racist rhetoric which has happened in America. Sometimes in literal cases, we know that Boris Johnson has, or at least had, a relationship with Steve Bannon that they met, that they've communicated. We know that the same goes for Jacob Rees-Mogg, now also in the cabinet as leader of the House. Um, We know that there are those connections. We also know that Steve Bannon has attempted to Uh, create that nationalist international, as you said, in Europe between the far right parties, um, which hasn't really prospered at a kind of electoral concrete level. But those communication channels are still there. And it's the same for Nigel Farage. He's, you know, friends with Donald Trump.
2: And I think the main thing that we really kind of have to start leaning on is actually taking much firmer action on the, uh, uh, on kind of the internet ecosystem that is really fueling a lot of these attackers. Um, you know, you look at the likes of, for example, the Toronto van attack last year, by, um, I think it was a uh, a kind of younger uh, male who explicitly cited kind of another um, uh, attack that, that I think the one that happened in Texas. Uh, um, uh, and it was uh, powered by much of the same kind of misogynistic kind of views um, you know, he, I think he specifically cited that he was a, an, an incel warrior, um, and you know, direct reference of uh, a lot of the kind of cultural kind of beats that are, are being hit on, on a lot of these on, online communities, and and there's very frequent reference made to you know, the fact, oh, it's almost impossible to regulate the internet, you know, and uh, and that really kind of goes back to the kind of very libertarian principles that man, that a lot of its uh, that a lot of it its early culture was founded upon. But you know, if you look at the likes of France and Germany, who pretty successfully managed to uh, ban and most Nazi websites because you know they actually mean it when they say they don't want these things to come back having experienced it the first time it is possible to drive these things underground you know you have to install and and, and um, specific software and know exactly what you're looking for to do a drug deal on the internet to to um, you know go into the dark web and, and and to find what you're looking for and it's very possible to do the same thing with these sorts of websites to make it a lot harder to you know accidentally stumble across them to you know clamp down on YouTube constantly suggesting in your in your recommended kind of next videos uh taking you through from uh video game reviews to pick up artists through to uh, effectively alt-right propaganda it's possible to count down on these things it's just the will isn't there to actually do any of it
1: a lot of the attackers are literally part of the same um, online ecosystems not only 8chan but gab which is the kind of um alt-right equivalent of twitter i think a lot of the people who you know when twitter has eventually kicked them off um have decided to go to that website including the uh the person who committed the um, anti-Semitic terror attack at the Tree of Life synagogue—they're um, all—they're all kind of in relation; they're all in conversation with each other. And I would really recommend a uh, article on Bellingcat, which is you know the kind of open-source investigative journalism website. I'm sure we can put it in the show notes or retweet it onto the Twitter account, um, which talks about the way in which there is a conscious emulation, um, and this kind of goes back far beyond maybe the recent state of. Um, alt-right you know, post-Trump attacks but also all the way back to kind of Timmy Timothy McVeigh and the Columbine shooters and just saying that you know there's this there's this system of radicalized right-wing terrorists and wannabe terrorists who deliberately seek to inspire other massacres and inspire other people to quote-unquote you know outdo them to get a higher kill count and um, It's just awful. But, you know, that's, that's the truth of it. And as Tiran says, you know, these, as long as these websites are allowed to openly host, and as long as they're easily accessible, you know, even something like um, the Daily Stormer, which although, you know, if you googled it, you wouldn't be able to find it, you can still if you know the web address, you can still type it in and you can still load it up. It's not it's not on tour it doesn't require you know VPNs or anything like that to access it at the moment as long as all that kind of infrastructure is as easily as available as it currently is I can't see I can't see a cessation of this you know I think internet companies uh, internet service providers as well just need to be so much more combative about this and they really need to kind of move past their qualms about uh, freedom of speech, I guess, and that kind of idea, and say, well, do you want your platform to be hosting people who are, you know, openly, openly celebrating... Murder. Yeah, waiting for the next, you know, mass atrocity. And that's a decision they have to make, and, you know, maybe it needs to be regulated because... uh, the current examples of it have just shown a complete lack of will
2: you've even seen like kind of even with the likes of twitter you know run by you know libertarian pin-up boy jack dorsey um you know even they've kind of come around to this uh you know i received a, a brief ban a few months ago for tweeting george galloway die after <laughs> after um he announced the support for the brexit uh. party and uh you know I, I i serve my time i'm willing to put my hands up and go you know what actually it's probably for the best that this sort of stuff is actually banned um and you know we've Is willing to actually kind of clamp down on it and recognise, you know, there is a greater good that you know comes from actually clamping down on not necessarily literal expressions uh, uh, that someone should die. Um, But um, overall, it's it's a far better place for it, and I think that's a kind of rule that internet service providers should be signing up to as a whole um, to to actually kind of clamp down on this sort of stuff. You know, where there are incitements to violence, where there are uh, these sorts of threats, um, you know, they should be looking a lot more seriously at clamping down on them. But even then, you know, that, that still ignores the fact that we have got still a very active ecosystem in the likes of The Spectator, where the likes of Fraser Nelson have been hosting, you know, effectively fascists, or close to fascists, in the likes of Taki Fiora since the 70s, uh, and the, the likes of uh, Douglas Murray, who are effectively just expounding propaganda against minorities, and, you know, basically verging on fascism. It's very difficult to think what can be done about that, but um, particularly also given it has kind of devolved into a bit of a culture war it's hard to see a, a boycott from the left really doing much to it other than you know having an opposite reaction of right-wingers just very hardcore supporting the the spectator but I, I certainly think we can't ignore the fact that it is putting out this sort of stuff and have to really think quite seriously about how we can combat it
3: yeah i think there's a really interesting question in sort of how far consumer activism can go so with a big website like twitter or facebook uh we're able and media organizations are able to put quite a lot of pressure and say you're hosting the six-training contest uh, content, and eventually, so like with Alex Jones, you see, eventually they'll move in, they'll take it out, but and with um, um Chant-
2: no, who was it as well? Oh, what's his name? Gay, overly. Miley, Miley. There we go. There we go. Oh. Yeah, he's basically been he's basically been bankrupted because you know everyone just thought, whoa, yeah, no, we're not gonna st- we're not gonna st- deal with your shit anymore. And he now finds it finds it exceptionally hard to actually make it from day to day because he can't raise money, he can't really do anything, he can't get audiences anymore. It is no, no platforming when you when it actually means no platforming does work,
3: and that's been successful. But I and mean, if you look at and the Cloudflare, the um website that was hosting 8chan, they've dropped it, but now um, the website 8chan has said that they're What's just having to, with to now? a new host, which was uh, BitMitigate, which I think we were discussing in the pre-podcast thing, is actually probably run by a white supremacist. So you get to that point where you drive them into a certain corner of the internet, and then once you get to that point, you can't really force people, and these people don't care about uh, consumer payoffs they don't care about the negative press that's coming with it so once you get to that point and it's that sort of really concentrated pits of hatred that are the ones spawning these shootings so I don't really know yeah and it's a really interesting question as to what point the government has to step in
1: Bit My Gate was is owned by Epic which is the one that has the um, just as James said is the one that has the owner with some highly questionable opinions and they do also own he also bought gab after gab was kicked off of its own um, by a by a denial, um distributed denial of service attacks so you can kind of see the infrastructure again there you know the interrelationship of it but i think it's better to have it was good that uh, Cloudflare took it off but yeah as you say if it's going to come back um maybe there needs to be more proactive action being taken to make sure they can't they just can't be accessed in this way so,
0: on the point about how we actually combat this change um, from the left and the um, liberals and center left and so forth, um, honestly, the most basic thing you can do, we can do, which does work, is just by talking about it openly. The reason we have a culture war about racism and Islamophobia and anti Semitism and so forth is because there are a slew of commentators and so-called journalists and politicians on the right who are more than happy to discuss this in the open and say, yes, I think Muslims and Hispanics and Jews are um, well, let's not country. act
2: as if it's entirely on the right with the Jews one.
0: <laughs> okay, yes. Also also, also within the Labour Party and on the left. And as a result, that filters through to the culture, that filters through to people's minds. And the more that you say it, the more it becomes normalised. And, you know, the average person on the street is going to think, oh, yeah, maybe they're right, actually. Obviously, they're not right. But the problem is that the notion that white supremacism and white nationalism is a bigger threat of violence than um, Muslim terrorists is not mainstream when that is a fact. So the more that Democrats and also politicians over here in, in Labour and the Liberal Democrats, and the Greens and so forth, um, talk about this openly and say, actually, no, the problem isn't um, ISIS or whoever. Um, the problem is actually far-right men um, radicalised on the internet who believe that white white people are superior and that they should be Killing anybody who isn't white—that that that is the real threat—and I think the more we just say that openly and say yes, that is a fact, the more it will filter down into the culture, and maybe then we'll get a cultural change.
1: We've also got to think about the way in which these kind of culture war policies are being dog whistled even in this country as well. I think the appointment of Johnny Mercer as an MP for veterans, the representation of veterans—I mean, it sounds very admirable on paper—but you think really this is going to be about making sure that British soldiers who committed war crimes in Northern Ireland quote-unquote like, aren't going to be prosecuted or anything like that you, you just think you know it's beyond belief that that is something that the British government would be actively advocating for but you know this is the this is the kind of thing we have to meet head-on and this is the thing that we have to be full-throated in our opposition to it because what it represents and what it is indicative of is far far greater than you know standing up for the troops or anything like that It it's about Oh God, I don't want to say the soul of the nation because that's so cliched. But it, it is about, <laughs> I mean, it, it it is about what does our government represent and what does it mean and what does it do? And if it starts to do this, then God knows what that the message that sends out about what the priorities of this country are, especially with a country that has such a, past that ours has with you know colonial violence and being you know actively a force for evil in the world for such a long time i mean i'm getting very impassioned because i feel very strongly about this but you know we've got we've got to be aware of it and as you say we've got a full full engagement with it and call it out exactly for what it is
0: hello and welcome back to this week's episode of the social review podcast um i am joined by the wonderful alex keely Hello, oh. Alex oh, Keely. I've,
4: I've immediately trodden over the rest of the You sentences. go
0: for it. It's fine. It's fine. I mean, usually we'd be just recording online, so we would have, like, structure these kind of things, but we're in-person... Do you know this is the first in-person interview I've ever done? Ooh. So... How are
4: you,
2: you recording it?
0: Uh, it's going great. We're 28 seconds in, and I'm loving it.
4: Hi, right, I'm Alex Keely. I am a late 20s, <laughs> i.e. I, uh, I, a month to go, uh, late 20s comedian, uh who, uh, because I talk about the Great Depression, no. So I am in my late 20s, uh, I do stand-up comedy, uh, I am semi-professional, I am good acid yeah uh but like whether that is financially uh currently reflected is different and i have a day job as a kind of maths tutor so imagine a maths teacher you're a maths tutor uh, an unethical version of
0: that see i was i was going to ask you this because i was fascinated like does he earn a living enough from stand-up to support himself just from that or Uh, so wait it's getting better it's getting better yeah yeah did you do a degree in maths no oh
4: (laughs) my (laughs) god
0: why did you want to become a political comedian? Was it the kind of thing where you were like, I'm really into politics, but also I'm really into comedy. Let's find a happy or unhappy uh, compromise between the two.
4: So when I started doing comedy, it was not a conscious decision to start doing political comedy. Yeah. I started because I just wanted to do comedy. Yeah. Uh, and then some of my jokes, some of my early jokes were very political. I had some stuff about about Israel, Palestine, and Sarah Palin, and the American government. Hmm. And, uh, but most of it was just about like the kind of quite cliche... Uh, sort of single white middle class man yeah. going wah 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 why, why am I not in a relationship which means, I've already seen that at the French yeah Not sure. well you know sometimes <laughs> sometimes I fire those jokes out when I feel the audience needs and wants a clear persona that isn't political uh oh um, but yeah so so is that um and then and then and then just like I think I've always known that i would rather I always want to be talking about politics it's what I care about all, mm. both what I care about and what I'm sort of Kind of addicted to, Mm. addicted to supporting. I think it's partially bad. The sort of ways I care about it, sometimes bad ones, and sometimes like, why is it bad? Well, because it constrains. I think people often make a really good point about certain type of politics nerd, where it gets a bit like football teamy. It's like, oh, you're not into football. Sorry. Oh, you're not into. You're not into. You're not into football. Mm
1: Like yeah, the, the sort yeah, of
4: people that would look down their nose at someone going like, "Well, I'm Liverpool," but then, like, "Oh, did you see what happened to the go?" And like so the stats nodes are like, oh "I'm a Liverpool fan" or something. Yeah, but yeah. Then they themselves talk about politics in a very like, in a very like insular Westminstery way, yeah. or indeed, or indeed, like ish way, even if they don't live in America. And I've been guilty of all those, and sometimes I'm guilty of that myself because it's just you know it's it can be exciting but it's not healthy and it's not you shouldn't be thinking about politics like that it's not a, it's not a it's not like a. it shouldn't be a hobby yeah it shouldn't be a hobby
0: yeah it shouldn't be a hobby so when you read like op-ed columnists and that is like their full-time job are you a bit just kind of (sighs) like yeah it's it's, why do you exist again i had a like I don't name any names.
4: I really no. Uh, I really wanted to do a bit where like it's just create like op-ed columnists shouldn't you shouldn't be allowed to write weekly columns mm. where the subject matter is t- as divergent as to be like well this is my opinion on schools this is my opinion on military this is my opinion on healthcare this is my opinion on, maybe that's maybe that's a strong statement for me but I basically mean no like, I would agree I'd rather I'd rather you are you can write a monthly education column and not be a qualified expert and that's fine because then you're clearly yourself research and I believe in the power of self research and auto autodidacticism. Uh, but but I want an expert on that topic telling me about this, not not someone whose job it is to have opinions. Yeah. And that week discover what their opinion is on that.
0: Yeah. And the opinion is always it it's, it's
4: you know it's a always... comedian
0: so ironically I'm, I'm aware of a, a sort of a sort of a sort of weapons grade level of irony happening here. <laughs> The social review is steeped in multiple levels of irony. That's <laughs> <laughs> not talk about some of the. The opinions are always kind of catering to. They're they're either always like intentionally uh, contrarian and outrageous, or they're always catering to a certain section of people, typically on Twitter. So so you're either trying to
4: you're either trying to anger or please people to a point that is intellectually dishonest.
0: Yeah. So I'm thinking of columnists who write about Brexit and. Try Trump and Boris Johnson all the time. And all their articles are kind of basically variations of the exact same thing, Um, but that's still their full time job. And you kind of think like. If Tony Blair in charge of the Labour Party now, it would be infinity percentage points. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Literally. If only David Miliband was back. Yeah. 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 Um, And you kind of think like, how do you still have a job? Um, Or like. the columnist in like the spectator and it's like they will always find a way to anger people and piss people off and take the contrarian line even if it is like fundamentally contradictory to things and positions that they have held before sometimes relatively recently the thing that comes to mind is the milkshake thing yeah. and then also Mark Field grabbing the female climate change protester in yeah the exactly exactly that thing
4: about Tony Blair is not even me but that's not my my opinion isn't really about whether Tony Blair is good or not there I have complicated I have a complicated opinion on him, and I don't actually know.
2: You have like a complicated
4: thing. relationship with Tony Blair. Is what yes, you're saying? yeah. Uh, but but my point more is that I think you're just wrong if you're looking. That it's not even about who would be best to be prime minister or who who would be best to be prime minister now. It's like how do you get who in power? And it's just like it's impossible. There's an insane, intractable situation where Corbyn is terrible, but his leadership of Labour Party does represent. A big chunk of quite a legitimately angry section of like a a left behind of of, of like a left that's just not been doing its job for thirty years. Yeah, and and uh, and how do you get the coalition when you've got basically two axes? You've got a like economic class axis and you've got a social cultural axis, and no one because Brexit is now so salient and class will always be salient. How the hell? How the hell do you get to forty percent? Or thirty three percent, even on the first pass the post, with a kind of like it's like left liberalism, like a sort of third wayish thing. It's not getting to thirty three, but no one's getting to thirty three. That's why British politics is broken. No one's getting like no one. The Tories can't do it. The Brexit Party can't do it. The Lib Dems can't do it. Labour can't do it. It's, it like there's a good chance the next election will be an insane coin toss. Coin toss. Coin toss. And coin toss. Like, to- it's actually I spoonerized that phrase. Coin toss. 20% of the time I say it it's really often <laughs> moving on to the show itself rationale yes um, basically about rational choice theory right yeah I think so That's I hadn't thought of it like that but
0: like yes you're right yeah. human rationality yeah, yeah. Um, this is something I'm really interested in as well and exactly. think about a lot so kind of perfect fertile ground for discussion Um, and the show is all about like it, you mentioned instances where we think things that are not rational and do things that are irrational and make decisions which are irrational yes and you challenge the idea that we make decisions based on rationality yes which I think I entirely agree with, and I think it's becoming more and more accepted. Um, yes. Yeah, I don't think it's a hot. It's not really a. It's not it's a hot take. It, I think. I think it's an interesting joke, but it's not a hot take. Hot yes, hot take. definitely, definitely. You have a couple of lines which I found very funny. It was like um, the only drug I've ever been addicted to is moral outrage, um, <laughs> and and the other one is like I'd rather be right than happy.
2: Yeah.
0: Um, were you, were you, Was that just a joke? Or are you telling the truth? I think part of you is telling the truth. <laughs>
5: Do you
4: know what? Do you know what? Uh, oh, that's a re- Yeah, that's... Uh, <laughs> let's all get gushy. That's a really interesting question. And I think there's a really fun paradox there where I think when I wrote that joke, it was true. Yeah. And it's now not true. Yeah. But it's... My entire show is funnier because... So that joke, it, the, my actual being right now is that I'm very... I'm really trying. I genuinely hate myself. <laughs>
5: <laughs> no, I
4: mean, I mean, it's funny, but it's it's. I'm not. I'm not having it. I genuinely hate myself, and. It, that bleeds into my own comedy and I'm really resolving to walk on stage instead of going, Oh my god, don't fuck it up, don't fuck it up, don't fuck it up, oh my god, 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 oh my god they're gonna hate you, they're gonna hate you. Just do yep. the script, just do the script, just go seven out of ten, don't be in the room, just get that seven out of ten, just don't fuck it up, just get just go seven out of ten. And now I'm just really trying to walk on stage being like, Oh, there's a good chance that they'll like your stuff. And actually it doesn't matter if they don't, be relaxed, enjoy it, be happy, and they'll be happy too, and the show will go better for everyone, and that's your job as an entertainer. Mm. And so, so yeah, I'm in a really uh, yeah, I'm in a really good place on that at the moment. So I think at the moment I would rather when I wrote that, I'd rather be right than happy, but now I'd rather be happy than right. And the reason that the joke is funny is because it's now it was less it probably was less funny when it was true mm. and it's now more funny that it's a lie
0: because yeah. of how yeah. I can implement it. So do you think that political developments have influenced um, that change in your thinking so like now a no-deal brexit actually looks extremely likely so when you say it's more likely what's exactly i saw a, a literally
4: all that happened was a push notification came on my phone which was said something
0: uh, it's more likely
4: uh, that the eu's rejected the eu has said that boris isn't trying to renegotiate the yes that's basically
0: it the government's position is that they won't negotiate until the backstop is removed the backstop won't be removed because to remove the backstop invalidates the Good Friday agreement yeah. and means it's literally impossible to have Brexit without a hard border. That's just a fact. Yeah. Um, which de facto means the default position of the government is that they want a no-deal Brexit. Dominic Cummings, the new um, big advisor to Boris Johnson, who everyone makes out to be smarter than he actually is, um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, has said... Humberbatch! <laughs> yes. Um, has said, um, you guys can call a vote no confidence and even if we lose we still control the date of the election and we're going to leave anyway on October 31st, so fuck you. Alex Keeley is currently, I, I, has his hands to no, his lips and it wasn't
4: performative. That was really scary to me. It is quite scary. And there's been a lot of constitutional discussion this morning. Not on an like, economic level, on a political level. I think, I think that there's... Yes. Like, I think a strange level.
0: democratic thing. I know it's really complicated, but so, I, it worries so, me a lot. Yes. Um, so so there was a lot of discussion this morning because of those statements and people and journalists being like, well, actually... Is there any legal requirement for the prime minister to resign if he loses a vote in no confidence, and what happens then? And it all basically concludes that in the in the event that the government literally refuses to go despite a vote of no confidence and also despite a new you know government of national unity being formed, is under the F- fixed terms parliament act under the Fixed-Term Parliament Act um, you need uh, 14 days to form an alternative government or that has to be an election. So even if an alternative government is formed, let's say by Jeremy Corbyn or by like, I don't know, Dominic Grieve and the Remain Alliance or whatever bullshit that is, um, he in that instance he would still refuse to go. Then the Queen has to step in because constitutionally and legally Alex is rubbing his face in sadness and depression. Um, constitutionally and legally she is still the number one and she is responsible for appointing the prime minister so that would be the ultimate end goal may not lead to that stage we don't know but like what's funny what's sorry to do the peep show reference what's funnier what's
4: funnier a boris johnson dictatorship or queen dictatorship they are both very funny
0: Um, (laughs) how do you see the state of politics ending where people are happier to be right um happier to be happy Rather be happy than right. Like, oh, so which way when they when it? they'd rather be right than happy. That I mean, like you said in the yeah, day. okay. Because I think pretty much all of like you know FBP, Twitter kind of wants a no deal Brexit in a way because yeah. they want to prove that yeah. they were right. My brother says this sometimes. Sometimes he thinks my, so. my
4: brother says it sometimes, and I have a big argument with him. I mean, he doesn't mean because I think he's still his logic is still like. If it was a quick no deal and then we quickly went back in, the net the net human happiness would be higher. And I just don't I don't think that's true because I think that it takes so long to and you can rationalise away, you can rationalise away anything. It the, the like tendrils of economic impact are complicated and no one who already wants Brexit will want to believe that Brexit would cause any misery. Mm. So it would take it would take best case scenario two years to go back in Mm. Uh, I think probably probably we're never going back uh, the more likely way of going back would be an orderly Brexit and then a long term marshalled campaign to say that was a bad idea we're doing it but we should really go back in sometime and to really like at a ground level uh, yeah, that's, that's and by long term, that's like several decades. That's like that's like twenty years. Yeah, that's and like it, that's it, like, I, that's it, like I, on on principle, not twenty years. On principle, I would not want a referendum to be held again until twenty thirty six for the explicit twenty years, like a, a classic generation yeah
0: rule. And, and even now, that isn't as long as the original time period between 2016 and 1975, or whenever the first referendum was.
4: Yeah, yeah, exactly. What, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, So that's what I meant. It took decades. 2053, here we come, <laughs> baby. <laughs> I am a mass cheater,
0: actually. It, took, um, it uh, took decades to have the pro-Brexit opinion fermented within the British mind, and for that to be unleashed in 2016, it's going to similarly take decades to have pro-EU <laughs> sentiments Fermented firmly in the British mind. And
4: not Sorry, listen- I didn't. I didn't listen to any of the last sentences you said because I know that I got the maths wrong because I'm really tired. You I'm got really the maths angry. wrong. I'm I really didn't notice. I was really angry about it. And so you're gonna have to repeat the entire rest of that sentence. Just, again. just say.
0: Just say what, it, what. was the? What was oh the no! Oh, we
4: well, absolutely never go. Absolutely, never apologise. Never explain. Although I did just both do both of those things. But set um, so, so say, again, <laughs> say again what you
0: said. Uh, what, did I, what did I say? I thought um, that would be funny, and actually, it's quite rude. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, I said, uh, <laughs> "This is throwing me off." Now I feel like you, how you did in your bit
4: yesterday. So, a classic generation, a classic generation. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so, classic generation. We do the thing and take a
0: long time. That's not even as long as the gap. Yes, we for, can con- edit this for, out. for context. Alex was thrown off his set yesterday by an unexpected moment for pause, and there was a solid five minute section where he was on stage like I actually don't know what the rest of my set is and trying to improvise yeah. the response the audience yeah, was- were too good
4: the audience were too the show went too well it did it did
0: <laughs> do you Do you want to join the podcast?
5: Uh, mm-hmm. how much longer is it going to go for? To probably, a couple of probably minutes. like yeah, five minutes okay sure sure <laughs>
0: For the last section of the podcast, we're joined by other political comedian, Ahir Shah. Hello. Hello, Ahir Shah, thank you for coming and oh, well. joining us at our table. Um, do you want to quickly introduce, say who you are?
5: Yes, uh, to right to you. my Here name go. is uh, Ahir. I sound like this because I have just come off stage uh, oh my doing my show. And uh, I'm bad at speaking, uh, <laughs> which is not a useful trait in my <laughs> line of work.
4: I just saw his show and I... Uh, it was so good that I broke down in tears in the street outside. And you sort of, you sort of almost all legally have to see a show. <laughs> so that's weird. <laughs> Mine's good. I'm proud of it. I've worked hard this year, and it's only going to get better. But uh, but you legally don't. I mean, don't see my legally see our. <laughs>
0: is what you have to do so that was that you all have to come to the Edinburgh Fringe right now every person listening to this come and have a big social review party it will be really fun I promise there's been a lot in the news this year about the Fringe and politics Um, not necessarily about political shows about the Fringe in terms of its accessibility in terms of its elitism or alleged elitism uh, in terms of uh, like rent prices for for performers venue costs Um, both of you are doing solo shows I just wondered whether both of you would be able to talk a little little bit about the costs and expenses associated with um, doing those shows Hmm. and how accessible you actually think it is for people.
5: From my perspective, the principal thing is, so lots of venues operate on very different policies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Right, so... You'll have certain venues where there is a large guarantee that the performer will have to front, uh, and then they will only get, say, 60% of the door takings um, at the one that I'm at. Uh, It's just a straight split with the venue, which is really nice, uh, and they do things in a much more equitable way. Is that just the Tonics well? No, this is uh, Monkey Barrel. Okay. uh, And for the shows there, they operate on a kind of a pay-what-you-want model, you can spend a certain amount to reserve a seat in advance, uh, or you can just sort of turn up and wing it uh, and drop something in the hat at the end. Uh, And I think that they also do a really good thing where they set behind a certain number of tickets every day, which you can only get if you just walk up and walk into the room for free, which I think Really helps because yeah. like then at least everyone can have a, a, a go at seeing. And, and, and often, those are some of the
4: best energy audience members in the room because yeah. they're exciting and they have come to queue. Whereas people who pre book in advance can be kind of broadsheet reviews and broadsheet readers you obviously want in your audience because they sell tickets, but are actually young
5: people who want to come queue. Yeah. And then, obviously, there's the free fringe itself, which I had done for several years prior mm-hmm. to this one, uh, which I think is working very well. So there are things that are sort of seeking to and being increasingly successful at disrupting the model that has pervaded the place um, for a long time. The one thing that seems immune to such disruption is the rent situation, mm-hmm. uh, because, I mean, this is a very old city with a limited amount of housing stock and it's just basic supply and demand and frustratingly we are we continue to demand and supply isn't going to increase any time soon and you the, and the you... entirety of the new town is still hundreds of years <laughs> old there needs to be <laughs> a newer town <laughs>
0: <laughs> you know? we need to re-
4: SNP if you're listening to this we need to rebuild Edinburgh I would, I would go almost further about the mean thing it's almost like at the end of the day if you've got a city that what doubles in population size this month is it like quite possibly I'm not not certain so so you can't you can't there's no like pl- there's no like policy solution that can prevent rent being quite quite mental because how on earth what you're meant to have a half ghost town like what's it like what does that look like but it's the other thing so it's just it's just the like venues themselves it's the producers themselves it's the, the the most like I think the medium performer probably comes up here and loses like a couple of grand on the show and then a couple of grand living costs and without them this festival doesn't exist that's mm. insane that's the bottom that's the bottom line morally on this and then and then uh, the the head of the like like a really important person in the like awards and the industry gave a big speech where they were like we can't regulate we can't regulate it's all that choice and she made a like very like almost like Hayekian kind of really really kind of like almost libert- yeah libertarian defense of the fringe I get that on an artistic level that actually is sort of true but uh, uh we could regulate it in a way that would not actually negatively impact any of the creativity and would save the mental health of thousands of performers that are creating the work and the work is better. The work, like I, I had, to, I ended up using a, a, an amount of financial privilege this year. Uh, there's a line in our show which I really thought about in terms of people using their privilege. Um, but I used an amount of privilege this year that allowed me in June and July to not tutor as much, and then my show is better this year because I had time to work on it. And I wouldn't need to do that if Edinburgh itself didn't cost thousands of pounds. <laughs> I, I, I
0: make a living. I don't make a sort of mad money explosion.
5: <laughs>
0: For both of you, can you see any way in which the fringe itself can become cheaper in terms of the venue cost? Or do you think it's basically at the bare minimum? Uh, you can, you'll can. you never You'll never stop.
4: Okay, so the capitalists in, I would weirdly make some more left on this one, but the, pe- the, the people who make money at the top of the chain will never voluntarily give that up. That's how money and power works, uh, and they're the the people doing the right thing are, are making inroads and will continue to make it better. But you will never not be able to monetize the hopes and dreams of a struggling artists. Yeah.
5: But also there is there is the fact that there are certain things which are out of our control, like the rent situation. There's very little that I can do about that, unless. Kills and I decided to top and tail for a month which I know that He I've already vetoed.
4: I just
5: <laughs> want to want to do. Um, but there are things where you just can't, like you are making the choice to be like, oh no, it's so terrible that my venue guarantee is X number of thousands of pounds. Why are you doing that venue then? Just don't. <laughs> like, mm. there are loads that aren't like that. Um, so I do think a certain degree of personal responsibility is also required. Uh, it's just like, yeah.
4: But it's also just like The problem is that's the that's the problem. It's like I still don't think you're right in don't you're right in don't. But it's just like like coming. I do you do get opportunities. The reason people do it is that like okay, the fringe dream in some senses has died. There's so many people who come up and so many like vanishing opportunities that it's very very unlikely you're going to have a transcendentally better career. uh, Come September, straight after your magical fringe, Mm -hmm. that's very rare. But you do get opportunities and you do actually make useful contacts and ventures. So you do sort of. You you almost can't be here, but you think just go to another venue. uh, The performance space is terrible.
5: I appreciate that, but I think that what the last few years of the Free Fringe has shown is that there are actually very good performance spaces that are available without that. You end up making money uh, out Mm. of the thing. Uh, No one feels as though they're getting ripped off from both the performer's perspective and the audience's perspective because Mm. bear in mind, a lot of the shows in certain venues will cost £15 and everything. I remember once taking my parents to see a very very good comedian but three tickets were the better part of 50 quid and he had some very disruptive drunks at the back of the room and they ruined the show and when we left my mum was like no oh, I didn't really like that, I was like oh no this is like," and I felt like oh I've just set fire to a 50 yeah? <laughs> but you don't need to do that, there's lots of excellent stuff that is available in other ways uh, I'm not saying like the, the yeah, you know, the dichotomy that people think of is that oh, if you're performing at a venue which charges this ridiculous guarantee, you're going to be in this sort of opulent theatre, whereas if you're somewhere that's free, you'll be standing on a bar as people are still ordering their drinks and everything like that. And
4: our here is in physically the best room I've ever seen to perform stand up in Edinburgh, and Edinburgh has one of the three best comedy clubs in the country hmm. in it
5: but like you get the reality of the situation is a lot of the places that cost X thousand pounds to rent for the month are just fucking broom cupboards that the university or anywhere has realised oh we can charge this so we will and there are lots of great spaces that are available for much less so, yeah if, if you want to come like don't be don't be put off by us talking about how expensive things are Because if you do your research a bit, uh, then you can sort of economise in in a good way. Oh yeah, not give a lot up.
4: Anyone, anyone can come up. I would say anyone can come up and do a show here. Well, could do a show here with technically zero costs. I would say, let's be a bit more reasonable. Anyone come up here and do a show with six hundred pounds? Kind of production, excluding accommodation. Excuse me the accommodation but I'm saying program entry fee you do need to do that at £300 and the audience will pay for itself that come from it even if it's two people a day that will make itself back Uh, and you need to have print. And you need to uh, a train do to <laughs> yeah, and you need to like PBH's is completely free. System is uh, I think really tricky because they they are quite bad at admin. Uh, whereas, of course, it's like hundred pounds. So I would say that's your minimum spend. Is you can do it all production costs for six hundred pounds for the absolute skeleton Yeah, come to the French.
5: Yeah, <laughs> it's, it,
4: it, it, but but also it's it's the it's the best thing ever made. It's the best thing ever made, and it just needs to be saved from capitalism always. Is destroying the best thing that's ever been made by being what if we took this thing that was good at 50% capitalism and made it 8,000% capitalism?
5: <laughs> that's all politics, all politics,
4: all politics is what if we took this thing that was good at 50% capitalism and made it 8,000%
5: capitalism? Uh, my show is called Ahir Shah Dots and is at the Monkey Barrel at one forty-five, and there will be extra shows on weekends. Uh,
4: my show is Alex Keeney uh, the show title is Rationale,
0: it's on a 6.40 at the Capes. Alex Keeley and Ahir Shah, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks. Once again, you guys have been sending us in uh, your questions and we have some uh, great questions this week, some lighter questions after our discussion earlier. Hoi Paloi asks, uh, does politics still feel unpredictable to you? The tale of the 2016 poll shocks has had a long shadow, perhaps past its viable shelf life. Um, I'll just say... So I've given a lot of thought to this. Um, I don't think either of the big significant events which happened in 2016, Brexit and Trump, um, were that unpredictable. I think it was more that people just didn't want to recognise that there could be re- reality because they were so um, terrifying uh, to admit that they could be reality. So people just said it's unpredictable. Um, whereas if you actually looked at the evidence before both um, both events occurred, uh, it, it, it was, you know, it was predictable to likely that both could occur. Um, and it's not so much a matter of like things being like unpredictable things happening. It's more that commentators are not looking at that evidence. So it was the exact same in the 2017 election. And I remember before each of those three events, I basically, I mean, not to like toot my own horn on this, but I, I was not surprised by any of them. And I predicted them correctly. There would be a Brexit victory, a Trump victory and a hung parliament because you just needed to look at uh, historical look at trends more closely. Yeah. Yeah. You need to look at historical trends. You just look at the a bit more closely. You need to look at like what people had been saying and like, you know, vox pops and interviews and so forth to see that those things were going to be happening. And, you know, sometimes an event is predictable and then that prediction passes. Boris Johnson becoming leader of the conservative party and prime minister, the Democrats winning back the house um, in the midterms last year. Um, just because something is particularly advanced doesn't mean it's not going to happen that's not the way you should be looking at it you should be thinking okay what is actually realistically going to happen based on the behavior of the people involved and those historical trends so I think the Boris Johnson one is the only one which you probably couldn't have predicted a couple of months ago and that's because the behavior of Tory MPs doesn't really make sense and we've touched on this a bit before in the podcast uh in our episode Tory talk I think we will try to be conservative MPs it doesn't make any sense to elect Boris Johnson because the electoral coalition doesn't really exist for every voter he brings back from the Brexit party he repels to to the Lib Dems another one to the SP or whatever you know so forth he would lose Scotland um, and the gamble is that you lose Scotland and you lose a bunch of moderate remaining Tories to the Lib Dems, but you pick up enough um, from the Brexit party and in working class communities in Wales and in the north of England to make up for it. Um, but I just don't think that gamble makes any sense whatsoever. Um, so, you, so it's not necessarily a sense of it being predictable or unpredictable. You just have to look at behavioural patterns And trying and trying to ascertain from that.
2: I think politics is still fairly unpredictable if only for the basic question of whether the left is going to line up behind Labour or the Lib Dems at the next election. I think that genuinely can't be predicted. Um, I think whether the Brexit party is going to be completely kiboshed at the next election, I think that probably can't be predicted. Uh, I think whether the government is actually going to have the nerve and be able to not be stopped going through with no deal can't be predicted. Uh, It's it's quite... What, um worrying exciting it's yeah i mean I, i'm buying i'm buying bags of fuel to keep in the corner of my room in case the worst happens that's uh, i think that's my basic judgment of whether politics is unpredictable <laughs>
0: we are pro fuel on this podcast uh <laughs> that's the whitest thing i've ever said uh. no no it isn't it isn't let's be real
1: <laughs> yeah i still think my capacity to be shocked by events is still very much there um maybe not surprised but um the kind of unpredictability of it all I certainly there are times there are times it feels like all the time at the moment I still feel like in a kind of depressing way the unpredictability is just like how low the ground is like how much deeper and more terrible can it get you know I was just thinking about uh the other day when um when you know Pretty Patel was talking about what she wants to do for her new policy in the Home Office, and just being like something like she wanted to do inspire terror in the hearts of prisoners, and I was, I just can't like yeah, yeah. it's just like beyond comprehension. Jesus Christ! Like we're in a, like we're in a, you know, this like the first act of you know the Judge Dread film or whatever, and it's just like I can't, I can't believe I still like I don't think I've like fully processed what it all means for our country, but it's nothing good. I can tell you that, and yeah, my, my capacity to still find it shocking and horrifying and like awful is still there so yeah i feel like the unpredictability is there even if maybe the kind of longer more structural stuff you can you can point to trends and kind of say oh, if you're paying attention to x you'll see z coming in the distance but yeah uh, lines
0: asks when we have a four day week what will your contributors personally do with that extra day um to work on the basis of uh, contributors being us the panelists what would we all do with our extra day
3: I think I'd try and write because I always end up putting it off, but if I had a dedicated day to writing I feel I like could get something done.
0: What kind of writing do you mean? Do you mean writing articles for the social review? Or like writing a social
3: review. Obviously writing articles for the like social review. Obviously. A whole day. True. Every yes. day. <laughs>
2: Well, currently the general law is that I use all bank holiday weekends in service of evil, but I think I would also use that extra day to write for the social review. Um, but also buying M&S tinnies, um, because currently I feel there aren't enough opportunities to do that. Um, so if you're having a four-day week every week, I think we should improve m um, and market share and the tinnies share of our bodies.
1: I just go to more, goddess is like, literally the most me answer to anything, but just like go and enjoy all the stuff and in london there is to go and see and do like i feel like i don't really spend enough time like going to parks and art galleries and things like that like you know when you live in london you can get this like really like parochial sense of like all of central london and any anything that where tourists go oh i'm not going to go there because that's for tourists and not for me and it's like hang on i i can go to lots of nice parks and spend my time you know relaxing and you know if, if um you know when when our beloved joe who's not here at the moment becomes a god king of england and institutes um the four day week i uh, i look forward to <laughs> swanning around quite a lot really
0: i think what i would do in my extra day um i spend a lot of time doing various projects um often unpaid projects for myself or my friends um and even like a social review
2: like, podcast
0: like, yes <laughs> like the social review podcast um uh, even if it was like um, you know, w- when it comes to like reading the books I've got or like watching the TV shows that I've got, I classify it as like work. It's like oh, I need to get through like this series, I need to finish this, I need to finish this book, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Read this many pages per day. Um, I like to shift away from that mindset. So I think if I had an extra day where I didn't do any of those projects and I just had my books and my shows and I'm like and my films, I'm like right, let's just watch and read today. I that's if, what i would
3: do <laughs> if that's work what do you do for pleasure i don't have pleasure
0: there is never any pleasure in my life
2: uh <laughs> i can endorse some in okay. if you're looking for pleasure
0: actually no. <laughs> no actually no my pleasure my pleasure is just probably seeing my friends and we'd go out to like you know parks and walks that kind of thing that's that's what i do for pleasure i go for walks A lighter question joel at Omi underscore two three three asks is a jaffa cake a biscuit or a cake answer cake uh you're incorrect joel that is a biscuit also, Jaffa Cakes are bad, so
2: who cares? This was, this was settled by the High Court, they're definitely a cake. They made a cake-sized Jaffa Cake to prove, to prove that it goes... Oh, wait, what's it? It goes hot or soft? Would
0: rather fight 100 <laughs> cake-sized Jaffa Cakes or
2: <laughs> Look, When it comes to dark chocolate, when it comes to a dark chocolate confection, I'm, I'm only here for the dark bounty. That is that's the one thing that I will hold true
3: and faithful oh, to. Oh, God. <laughs> you truly are so
1: an, a, an abomination to man and God, pretty much, at this point mm <laughs> That
3: totally court case sounds doctor, fascinating because yeah. yeah, I'm just imagining the Supreme Court sitting there watching a giant Jaffa cake slowly going stale. I am going to
2: have to I'm going to have to find this Jaffa cake High Court case just so I can reference it so everyone can go look it up because it's probably one of my favourite things to have occurred in the country. Um, yeah, they were named in 2012 the best-selling cake. Oh, for fuck's sake, the best-selling cake or biscuit in the UK. Ah, for, oh, for God's sake. Um, no, the VAT Tribunal in 1991. Uh, the court found in McVitie's flavour that Jaffa cake should be considered a cake for tax purposes so it was a 1991 vat case uh and they yeah baked a cake size jaffa cake which i'd quite like to see
0: patrick Litton at patrick Litton asks what is each panelist's worst political opinion we've already just heard one of Tyrion's worst opinions that dark bounties are good
1: just like full stop really yeah
2: i'm thinking i'm about to make it worse um i actually
1: quite like (laughs) oh mate My worst opinion is certainly my, um, god, this is truly a self-drag of massive proportions, but, um, just how I kind of have an implicit respect, I guess, a little bit, or, like, a little bit more of interest in people who which is definitely the root of my weird thing where I really thought had an interesting potential and then I you know engaged in some deep self-reflection about that and realized it was basically because you my upbringing being what it was I retain a an, an innate sense of deference um which I've tried very hard to push past but ultimately um you know lives with me still a little bit um and is uh, a deeply, deeply, deeply terrible opinion to have.
3: I think this is probably my worst political opinion, and it is, I'm aware it's a bad one, but I have never understood getting angry at the NHS. I feel like if you... then it's going to happen, and I don't see the moral aspect to it. I actually, okay, I actually have two bad opinions that I've just thought up.
0: Um, I don't know which is worse. My first bad opinion is that I actually don't think that bad
3: this is I a good opinion my second bad
0: opinion um, which probably is actually a bad opinion or actually maybe not I don't know is that I find most incredibly insufferable um and
2: I <laughs> No this was this was actually a fair enough one, but yeah, it's kind of okay, a, it's it's okay. bad it's bad to err and discourage them because you know I'm sure they're useful and they, they yes. get hurt so easily. <laughs> yeah,
0: so this is why this is why I classify it as a bad opinion, because I don't wanna be like I don't wanna find myself in the bedfellows of the old right.
2: I declare it's all cancelled after that segment
0: for listening to another episode of the social review podcast the music you heard as usual is sweet of a mouth composed by kevin mcleod licensed under creative commons thanks very much to my co-hosts uh tiran eugenie and uh, james uh, and also thanks to alex Keeley and ahir shah uh, for joining uh, me on the podcast if you're at the fringe check out alex and ahir shows and uh, let us know what shows we should be seeing because you can always see more shows you hear us
1: again next week
0: thanks very much goodbye <music>
1: Sorry, I'm just eating a Kit Kat. The Jaffa cake talk made me remember I have a Kit Kat.
2: That one is a biscuit. That one is a biscuit.
1: Yeah, because in the luxury <laughs> bits, they're dark chocolate Kit Kats.
2: Oh, yes. I'll tell you what's good dark chocolate bounty. That's the only real bounty.
0: Oh, oh Tyrion, shut up.